episode 995, The Best of the Best, Part 8, Bible Fatigue and the Transcendent. Bible Fatigue. Uh, I don't remember. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Ben Edison. I'm Ben DeVono. I'm realizing as we're doing these that I think I kind of do these episodes and I'm really passionate about them and really excited for them. And then as soon as they're done, they're instantly out of my mind because I don't remember these. Do you want to hear the description? Well, I imagine it's that, you know, you're sick of the Bible. If we, here's, here's what I wrote after you gave this episode, which I'll say was from September. We released it on September 16th, 2017. It was originally episode 586. I'm going to cough real quick and I'll read you this description. <clears throat> okay, I'm back. Is this the Delta variant? I think I'm fine. Oh, good. If we believe that the Bible is the word of God, shouldn't we be blown away by the text? Why do we sometimes get bored reading the Bible and what should we do about it? That does not sound like an episode you would do. No, but I think the transcendent, like I, I think I'm up onto something here. So let's see what, what yeah. happens. So there were multiple episodes about the transcendent. I don't have them all here, but there was a a, a slew of transcendent themed episodes. Yeah. Is that true? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's become a, it's been a Or maybe major... I'm thinking of. No, you're yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. You're right. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say here's what. So I listened to this episode, uh, what was it, the end of the year, Listener Appreciation Jubilee, where this one won. Here was what it was up against. The very first Sci-Fi Christian canon, which was episode 600. Uh, episode 617 okay. is Santa a Wizard. That well, was that a good was, one. That was a good one. Episode 659, you had a whole idea on how to fix Star Wars. So that oh. was the episode was called How to Fix Star Wars. All right. Episode 663, Narrative Theory which I believe is coming up in an episode we're doing soon. Is that right? When we talk about, uh, when you give some business advice? Yeah, we're talking about business. So, yeah, narrative theory has been with us for a while here. And then uh, one of my, this was my vote for that year, episode 666, Searching for Satan. Hit that music. (laughs) Episode 586, Bible Fatigue and the Transcendent. That'll get people guessing. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. And I am Ben DeBono. We are back. And you'll get to hear a little outtake at the end because we just changed the title of the episode moments ago. That's right. So let me tell you a little story. Last week, I was sitting actually in the chair that Ben's sitting in right now, Uh-oh. reading the Bible. I was in the middle of Luke. That's not a very comfortable chair to sit in in. Like, I wouldn't well, read in this chair. I live in a small apartment, so the options are limited. That's true. You do have a lot of stuff on your couch at yeah. the moment. So we're getting ready to move, hopefully. We're right. going home soon. But anyway, so I'm reading the Gospel of Luke, reading the words of Jesus. And it's a story I've read many times. I, I know I know where things are going. And right. I, and I could almost feel myself just kind of like reading but thinking about other things. It's like you've already seen this yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. I know what's going to happen. Just get right. on with it. Uh, but... It just started to hit me all of a sudden. No matter how many times I've read this, I'm reading the words of God. If we believe that Jesus is God, we and we have his words available to us to read all the time and to learn from, how are we not more into reading the Bible? Like I like for me, I like reading the Bible. I like studying. I like dissecting here on the show. Right. But yeah, even there sitting in that chair, 
I started feeling kind of like, yeah, bored, I guess. Just kind of like, I've been here before. Yeah. I, don't, I don't need to read this chapter again, even though I was. So why is that? Why do, and I talked to my wife about it and I messaged you about it. And I think this is sort of a common thing for Christians because we are so, we do have such great exposure to the Bible uh, as opposed to other times in history where people had to fight more to really get the scripture. Well, just a bunch of illiterate peasants running around. Back in the old days. Right. Right. Not now. No, not now. No. Well, we're on our way. <laughs> All right. So, so yeah, it just really it hit me and it actually made me feel bad that I'm he's sitting here with a book with the words of God in my hands and I didn't feel passionate about it. So, message you just to see what your thoughts were on the subject. And it turns out that you and your men's group have been talking about the subject. Yeah, not directly this subject, um, but I think we can couch it into a, a larger uh, conversation. Yeah, so basically, listeners, uh, uh, Ben's got some notes here. I'll respond. But yeah, I do want you to be thinking about, are you in that same place? Have you been reading the Bible and then just kind of felt bored, but kind of wanted to move on, but anyway, without really realizing we have access to the words and teaching of, of God? It's crazy. So, Ben? Take it away. Uh, so I think your direct question to me was, can you turn this into an episode? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I'd say a, a couple things just from the beginning, because we're going to kind of go on a what will feel like a very long tangent. And this is actually going to tie into pretty heavily into all of uh, the Theology of Aesthetics episodes, because it's very similar thought space uh, to that in terms of where I'll get to. Uh but I think you'll feel better by the end of this episode because I think that, A, that's very common, uh, and I don't necessarily even think it's a bad thing, to be honest with you. I don't think that that's necessarily a negative place to get to. Uh, and I think where it starts to feel negative is that we tend to be very experience-based in our culture and especially in evangelicalism. Uh, there's always there's a strong push, and I'm not saying that this is all bad uh, by any means, but in uh, evangelical and uh, charismatic circles, there's a lot of push towards uh, faith experienced. And I think that that can kind of lead us astray sometimes because I, I think that experience is a factor, uh, but it's not necessarily what we're after. Okay, so the, where where your and I's thought processes collided is that I was, as I've been thinking about some of these issues surrounding this whole theology of aesthetic stuff that we've talked about, and by the way, you don't have to listen to any of those episodes to get to this one. I'll, I'll catch you up. Uh, though if you had, if you have, keep uh, what we talked about there in mind. Um but as I was thinking through all the issues surrounding that, it helped me resolve a pretty big question that I've had over the last several years about devotional reading and its value. Because here's the paradox in my thinking that I, I came to, is that being raised in uh, evangelical tradition, um, I was always taught, as I, you know, I, I think that you're clearly acting out of two about the value of reading the Bible on a regular, if not daily basis. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I've always believed, and this contrary to what some people might suspect, this did not disappear when I became Catholic, but I've always believed that, that, that there is a very real value to that. Okay. So that was one conviction I had. 
but then conviction two got formed when I went to seminary and I got my degrees. Because when what happens when you do that is you start to realize this is a really, really complicated book. And so the conflict that I started to feel is that starting to realize it's very difficult to actually be able to tell what the Bible is trying to say. And there's a lot of places where it might seem clear until you dive in and start studying it, and then it gets very complicated. And so the conflict for me was that on one hand, we're holding up this ideal of sitting down and reading the Bible and just reading it as the Word of God and as a devotional thing. And then on the other hand, this growing conviction that to actually find value in Scripture requires a lot more work than just sitting down and reading it. And so then you start to think, well, what about 98-year-old Irma uh, who's sitting in her rocking chair and she has no theological training whatsoever? Did you pick that name because of the hurricane? Uh, probably subconsciously, yeah. not consciously. I guess that's probably why it was on my... It sounds like a grandma name, though, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, I saw on the news that there was a grandma and grandpa-aged couple, one oh, yeah. named Irma, one named Harvey. Yikes. Real people in the real world. That's crazy. Both na not named after hurricanes, but right. happen to have no. hurricane names. Right. They just changed their names at the courthouse that afternoon. <laughs> All right, so back to Irma. <laughs> so, <laughs> so back it, to Grandma. So like, she, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like the picture I'm trying to paint is somebody who's just faithfully read the Bible every day, but has no theological training, and it's like they're probably in in that person's thought process reading the Bible, making a million theological mistakes. But yet we still want to say that there's value here. So there's this conflict that I've had in my thinking where I don't. I have two things that I believe, and they don't seem to go together very well. And I kid you not that when you wrote to me about this topic, I had within the last few days, for the first time since I entered seminary, uh, however many years ago it was now, five, six years yeah, ago. five years ago, I think, right? Like, no, no, no. We, we started in 2010, so seven years. Seven years. I felt resolution on that topic. Okay. And it was also the same resolution that I think will eventually in this episode provide an answer to you. So there you go. And I saw wow. uh, the stars aligned. So when I wrote that message, well, did you think it was like, wow, God's really lining this up? Or like, what did you think about the timing of that? I, I didn't. <laughs> okay. Just, I got excited because I, I had an answer. Okay, good. So that maybe wasn't very Christian of me. <laughs> That's all right. It's okay. Go ahead. Okay. Dive into your notes. So... In this whole Theology of Aesthetics episode or series, we've kind of been talking about, well, we've been talking about a lot of things. We've been talking about a lot of uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson's stuff um, and his whole emphasis on sorting yourself out and doing small things well and all of that. And his really kind of, uh, just to kind of summarize my summary in earlier episodes of him, is essentially just really trying to get you to break your life down and not focus on going out and trying to change the world before you can actually change yourself. In other words, um, you know, we tend to like to focus on all the big problems in the world. And the hurricanes are, are a great example of like, yeah, not to say that we shouldn't help, but you should help, you should donate if you can, you know, all that good stuff. But that we like to focus on those big macro problems, which really you're fairly powerless to do anything about. I mean, you know, a lot of us donate money, but Beyond that, there's really not a whole lot you you can do about these hurricanes or about what's going on with politics, whatever you think about that, good, bad, or indifferent. And so there's all these huge problems out there in the world, and they're real problems, and, and 
there might be stuff we can do to influence them, but we tend to focus most of our energy on those things, and we don't focus our energy on uh, actually the things that are in our sphere of influence. And so he has a lot of interesting thoughts on that, you know, and his whole mantra has been, you know, go clean your room, like, you know, go sort that out and start there. And if you can't clean your room, you have no business going out and, you know, pontificating about how to solve healthcare or something like that. And, and it's a really down to earth, uh, but brilliant way of thinking. I strongly recommend going and listening to him. He, he's a very, very wise man, but it got me thinking about, you know, really trying to break down life into its most basic elements and starting. And so what I've been trying to do over the last several months, and you mentioned I've, in terms of the conversations I've had with my men's group, this is a lot of what we've been talking about over the last four or five months. It's, they've just been kind of letting me, well, I've been sharing a lot of these thoughts with them and just trying to build up this philosophy of what does it mean to live a good life? what What is the goal of life? And just not even necessarily couch that in Christian thought. Um, not because I think that's that's not a good thing to do. I think it is a good thing to do, but just to break it down to its most basic level possible uh, and go from there. So I started to ask myself just very basic questions. And there's a lot of, like I said, several months of thought behind all of this, but I'll summarize a lot of it fairly quickly. So I started to ask myself, what is the goal of life from that in the most basic, what's the most basic way that I can express the goal of life? And the answer I came up with was that the goal of life is to live well. Okay, so that's almost tautological. Not quite, but it's almost a tautology. You know, the goal of life is to live well. Okay, so what does it then mean to live well? So I thought about that, and the answer I came up with was that to live well is to be fully human. Now, wait, are you, I. Let me interrupt for a second. Yeah. Because uh, so these are what you're coming up with. Yeah. So what about like the typical love God, love others? Well, I think all of that's in there. We'll get there. Okay. But so I'm just. But see, if we start with love God, love others, we have a lot of complexity on top of that. We have a lot of complexity there. What I'm trying to get at is the most basic level possible. Okay. Uh, so. That's where I'm saying nobody be like, oh, Ben's going and creating yeah. his own religion. I'm not doing that. Like, we're going to get there to all of that okay. stuff. But if we start with the most basic components possible, uh, the goal of life is to live well. To live well is to be fully human. Okay? Um, and so then you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to be human? Now, there, you can start to get into... I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but just for the sake of being able to answer mm -hmm. that question. I mean, you get into things like, well, if you're a Christian, being human, at least part of what that means is to be made in the image of God. Okay? So, to be human is to live as you were made, to live as humans were meant to live. You know, uh, that's kind of the direction. And you can see how eventually you would get to areas of love God, love others, and and all of the other great stuff that that comes with Christian duty. But I, I don't want to start there. Like, you want to start at this most basic level. And so if the goal of life is to live well, to live well is to be fully human, uh, you can also look at things like, um, well, then what sin is is what Thomas Aquinas said it is, which is an act of uncreation. In other words, an act of sin is a failure to be fully human. It, in other words, it's a failure to, or to put it in Christian language, a failure to 
live out your life as God's image bearer. Okay, so if we're created in the image of God, then to be fully human is to live out your life as the image of God. And if you sin, sin is an act of uncreation. It is the opposite of that. It is a failure to be fully human. Okay, and then suffering, which we've talked about in the Theology of Aesthetics episodes at times, the taking on of suffering is the reparation of sin. It is the ability to undo the effects of failing to be fully human. Okay, I'm not suggesting that this is the only way to look at these things, but I think that this is the way where if you were to try and construct a philosophy uh, of life from the ground up, that's where you have to start because that's all that we know. We know what it's like to be me in the most basic way. That's all you know is what it's like to be you. And so we start at this basic level and construct upwards from there. Um, and even at this level, we can start to see how Christian theology uh, sits right on top of this. Okay, so I started to think about what does it mean to be human? What does What is a human in uh, a very basic sense? And for a variety of reasons, just more related to other things I was thinking about at the time, I started to think about this in terms of reason and rationality. Because this to me is very key, especially as we start to untangle the whole modernism, postmodernism mess that we've talked about on other episodes. And so we look at human reason, and we have to ask ourselves, is that the whole picture? And I would say very definitively that no. Uh, I would say humans have a capacity for reason, but humans are not primarily rational creatures. Uh, this is one of those parts of the, this conversation that I'm going to truncate a fair deal so that we can move along. But there's very good reasons to believe this. Some of these I think we talked about a little bit in the Theology of Aesthetics series. Um, but humans have this capacity for reason, but we're not rational creatures. Okay, so what else are we? Are we irrational creatures? And well, at times we can act irrationally, but to be fully human, I think, is not, you know, to be created in the image of God. I don't think that the goal there is to then act irrationally. So there must be other categories we need to think in besides just reason and irrationality, right? So I started to think about, okay, what are those other categories? Well, you can come up with some basic ones, like you could say non-rationality, which would be kind of this animal instinct stuff. And that that's more of a biological thing than anything else, because obviously animals are not created in the image of God, or they're not human, or however we want to put that. And so this whole non-rationality stuff um, doesn't really tell us a lot more about what it means to be human. Okay, so what else is there? So I started to think, okay, uh, there's what I would call extra-rationality, which is this level that sits on top of rationality. And this extra-rationality is the level of archetypes. Okay, so we've talked about archetypes a fair bit, and, and stuff like Joseph Campbell's monomyth describes archetypes in Jungian psychology, and we've been talking about, you know, not just in the theology of aesthetics, but other episodes, this whole concept of the shadow self and all that. And so archetypal thinking, uh, psychological thinking, um, the level of story is an extra-rational uh, category, and I started to think about this, and that's something that Peterson, he doesn't put in those terms, but he talks about archetypes a great deal. And so there's this whole extra-rational category that sits on top of humans. And this is really key, I think, to understanding uh, 
what goes on in the world. And if you start to look at the world and look at human interactions through extra rational lens, things start to make a lot more sense. For example, and I'm not going to get into two specifics here, but essentially what goes on in a uh, political campaign is not a reasoned engagement of different points of view. It's the selling of extra rational stories. Okay. Uh, Hope and change from Obama's 2008 campaign is an extra rational narrative. Make America great again is an extra rational narrative. So what politicians do is they're not, and and I'm not saying this is good, bad, or indifferent. I think it just is what it is. This is how humans work is that they they argue and they promote themselves as extra-rational figures, archetypal figures. So they're selling themselves as a story yes. or as a narrative Correct. more than as a person. Correct. Yeah, and even to an extent where like the the specific ideas and the specific facts surrounding an issue start to matter less and less the more you buy into those stories. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is that as humans, we're just very compelled by an extra rational uh, figure. Okay. Another part of it is though, is that there are too many facts for us. And so, you know, you look at what, think of all the issues that are thrown out in a, a presidential election. You know, so you have issues like uh, tax reform. You have issues like immigration. You have issues like foreign policy, healthcare. You know, you go on and on and on. And you think of all the facts that it would take to come up with a wise decision on each one of those issues, completely regardless of political philosophy. Just all the, as humans, you don't have the capacity for all those facts, and you're, neither does your candidate. Okay. Now there might be very there might be very smart people who are experts in those individual fields, um, but we talk about making an informed vote, and to a degree that's important. But to another degree, it's actually impossible because you can't be informed enough to vote uh, in a truly informed way on all of those issues. Instead, what happens is that your personal biases, which exist on an extra rational level. Because they come from things like your background. They come from things like your personality. They come from things like your religious beliefs. Like, you know, a long list of stuff. Your financial circumstances. Your, your, uh, you know, racial background. All of this stuff exists on an extra rational level and acts as a filter for facts. Because there are too many facts out there, especially in the information age, for you to absorb. And so this extra rational layer really acts as a filter in terms of how we make decisions then in the political sphere, which in a lot of ways is actually fairly terrifying when you start to think about what the implications of that are. But it's also, um, you know, I don't think it's something to lament so much as it's something to understand. It's like, that's just how humans are. And you're not going to change that. You're not going to get, you know, you might say, well, I wish everybody was, really sat down and looked at all the facts on every issue. Well, A, you don't do that. You might do that on some issues. You don't do that on every issue. Everybody's doing this, whether you realize it or not. That's just the way humans are. So maybe the better solution is to find a way to adjust our system to account for for that way of thinking. Anyway, so there's this whole extra rational layer. Yeah, I like what you're – just real quick, I do like what you said there about you want us not to be worried, but just be aware of what's happening. Right. Yeah. You know, and – to the extent that it represents a flaw in how we do things, 
it's going to be a flawed system more than it is because humans aren't going to change. Like that just is what humans are, you know, and we might say we wish we weren't, but that goes back to our, you know, why we had to start at that most basic level. What does it mean to live well? Is to live well is to be fully human. To be fully human is to be God's image bearer. So if this, especially if we look at it from a Christian perspective, if that's how humans are created, then we might lament the fact that that's the way that we are created, but we don't change that. If you want to look at it in purely secular terms, like that's just the evolutionary biology of it, right? Humans do not have this unlimited capacity for facts. That's just a fact, right? All right. Yeah. And, and so that just is the way it is. So there's this extra rational layer that, we, that humans operate on that in a sense, uh, it does a lot of things, but in a sense, it, it uh, allows us to function despite that flaw. It allows us to buy in and believe in things even when we don't know all the facts. There's a lot of great things it does. In a sense... This extra rational archetypal layer is an abstraction of humanity. Okay, because in some, that's one definition of an archetype is that an archetype is humanity distilled and abstracted. So a hero archetype, okay, a Luke Skywalker is an archetypal character in Star Wars, uh, at least so far. We don't know what they're going to do to him in The Last Jedi. Uh, but so far, Luke is, especially in A New Hope, he's, he's this archetypal. Uh, hero's journey figure. Well, that's traits of humanity distilled into a single individual and then abstracted in the form of a story. Okay. So then I thought about, well, but is that, so is that it then? Is that uh, all that humanity is about is operating on this rational layer and this extra rational layer? And I came to the fairly definite conclusion that the answer is no. Humans also have this desire for the transcendent, what I would call this tr a transrational layer that lays on top of it. Now, that's not a proof by any stretch of the imagination that there is a God or that there is something truly transcendent. I, of course, believe that there is, but you know, if we're trying to look at things from the most basic level and build up, uh, we would say that that's not a, there is, that is not a proof for God. But what it is a proof for, and I'll describe what I mean in a second— is that humans have a consistent desire to aim not only for this kind of story, extra-rational, archetypal layer, but for something beyond that, for the truly transcendent. That tends to be where, for as much as I, I absolutely love his work and admire him, where I do part ways a little bit with, with uh, Peterson, because... Um, and this isn't even so much his fault, because he, he readily admits that I'm looking at this archetypal layer and then... Anything else that goes beyond that, I just leave it alone. Okay. Um, but like he's been doing lectures on the early Genesis stories from a psychological perspective. And it's really interesting stuff. But then when he gets onto something like God or the Trinity or something like that, that's where he gets really weak because that we could say that there are extra rational elements going into how humans understand God and the divine. And that's very true. But there's also this desire, to, this human desire to reach for something beyond merely the extra rational into the truly transcendent. I think you see this in the great works of art. You see this in uh, religions. Like you think of it just forget the truth or falseness of any religion and you just look at what does a religion functionally do? Why are humans religious? 
Well, you can see a lot of reasons for it, and uh, plenty of them have absolutely nothing to do with whether or not there's a god. Um, it's a terrific way to uh, pass on morality and tradition to the future generations, uh, which are very valuable things. It's a great uh, organizing uh, principle for society, and on and on it goes. But then you're always going to come up with, though, that there is always this aspect of religion that is about trying to find that which is beyond, trying to find the truly transcendent. And if you look at Dante in The Divine Comedy, that's really the process that he goes through. Like, the Inferno is the most rational layer of the comedy. Everybody is in there defending themselves in a rational way. It's very clearly organized. People do not move from one place to another. Everything is in its place and just is what it is. It's a rational layer. Yeah, we've talked about this before. It feels like when you look at Inferno and then Purgatorio yep. and then Paradiso, is it DCO or DSO? DSO. Yeah. That every level up you go, it, even just the literature, it's harder to comprehend. Correct. It, it, that's why I feel like Dante's Inferno as a whole is a more recognizable phrase than the Divine Comedy because right. it's the most easily accessible of a piece that's not very accessible. Exactly. Exactly right. And so you can kind of trace this journey from the rational through the extra rational to the transrational uh, on top uh, through the, the comedy. Um, just as a side note, so I had come up with this whole kind of pyramid, if you will, of rationality on the bottom and then extra rationality and transrational. Yeah, I remember that. We did a whole... Uh, listeners, if you don't know, we, we did a whole series on the Divine Comedy, so check that out on our website. Uh, but then I got really excited laying in bed one night about a month ago when I, I was thinking of these different layers, and it suddenly hit me, where have I seen this before? I've seen this in C.S. Lewis's Discarded Image, oh. which is all about kind of the oh, medieval yeah. model of the universe, uh, particularly in Dante. And so I got very excited because I realized, oh, man, I might be onto something here. I might not, you know, maybe I'm not just... Uh, making stuff up as i go along it's like this might actually make sense yeah you know and so it's very exciting uh when i realized that and that clicked for me and so this whole and what's even more exciting about that is that the pre-moderns which is what c.s lewis is describing as pre-modern thought of course would not have been thinking in terms of this rational extra rational transrational that type of stuff but that they came up with by observing the world around them not in a scientific way but in a metaphysical way came up with a model that well it has a great deal more than what i have in my little three-step thing but that maps onto the same thing i'm seeing and that's always exciting to me when when the thoughts that you're having start to map up with thoughts of people who are much 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 smarter than you you know i know we've talked about this in the past and you've said you don't really want to just write a book just to put more things out there but I know a lot of listeners would love to read things that you have in mind. It, could this possibly be a topic you could organize your thoughts and put something out there? Well, I, I, I am working on a project involving, very early still, but I have a project involving um, Dante, and not just Dante in terms of reading it, uh, but Dante as a guide through these different topics we've been talking about through this series. So the title that I have for it, and I don't know if I'm... Wait, do you want this on the air? Yeah, I don't mind. Okay. Uh, the title I have for it is Dante, the Prophet of the West. And in a sense, looking at him as a prophetic figure who can speak a unique level of truth into our postmodern state. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do that as a series of videos, or I'm, I'm 
writing stuff out, but that's mm-hmm. more just to get my thoughts out at the moment. Uh, so don't look for that anytime soon. All right. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm interested in writing stuff that nobody will ever read. I'll read it. Oh, oh, and I know lots one. of listeners would as well. Dozens. A dozen. At least a dozen. At least a dozen. <laughs> okay. So one last thing, and then we'll, we'll almost be at the point where I can answer your, your question. So the reason it's so important to bring up Dante in terms of looking at this push for the transcendent, push for the transrational, is that Dante includes one of the most key parts in terms of understanding how the transcendent fits in with everything else. Because when Dante gets to the very top of Paradiso and he gets to the beatific vision, this incredibly weird thing happens in the comedy, which is this great reversal of everything. So, in other words, in the Dantean model of the universe, Earth is at the center of the universe, and then we climb up uh, Purgatorio and then the different spheres, and so we're, we're going to greater and greater expansion of spheres. When Dante gets to the beatific vision and he sees God, the entire universe turns inside out so that now God is at the center of the universe and the Earth is at the complete outside. And the it's like it's the type of idea you could do a whole show just on what that means. Like, you know, Satan is at the center of the universe. Satan made himself the center of the universe in Dante's cosmology, and by the end of it, he is could not be farther on the outside of the universe. Really a fascinating thing. But <clears throat> what's so important about that for this conversation is that okay, so it's the transcendent this this human push for the transcendent like what is that? And obviously we could say as Christians, well that's that's the pursuit of God, that's the desire um, to be back in perfect communion with God um, but if we're to abstract that a little bit because we're and I'm not trying to say I don't believe those things, I'm just trying to think of things in the most basic way possible and build up from that, I hope that d- distinction is clear uh, is that this push for the transcendent is a push for that which will invert your life and invert reality in a radical way. In other words, because we know that we do not live well, we sin, and we know that we are incapable of taking on suffering into the redemptive uh, aspect that can actually transform things. And so part of the human push for the transcendent is to find that which reorganizes everything. That's what the transcendent does, is it turns your life inside out. That's what an encounter with the transcendent does. Okay, so now we're going to uh, finally just about get to answering your Bible question and how that fits in. So I started to think through then, okay, what does this actually look like in a step-by-step process in terms of living out what it means to be fully human? And I, I won't go through all of these in a ton of depth, in part because I did that in the last uh, men's group we had, and it took me about an hour. Uh, but I came up with five steps. So step one was, and I'll, I'll just put them out there, and then I'll explain a little bit about each one. Take responsibility for yourself. Live a life of ritual fulfillment. Transcend beyond yourself. Care for what has been given to you. Make the world around you better. Okay. So let's take one step back from that. There's a clear uh, path there. Take responsibility for yourself. Live a life of ritual fulfillment. Transcend beyond yourself. Get in touch with the transcendent. 
And then from there, it turns everything inside out. Care for what has been given to you. Make the world around you better. Okay, now let's take one more step back and look at these just in brief. So take responsibility for yourself. That's really the whole Jordan Peterson, step one, go clean your room. Like actually do start doing those small things that you can manage to make, to sort your life out, sort yourself out. In other words, don't take responsibility for uh, the healthcare industry. Don't take responsibility for uh, sorting out of what your political opponent's uh, are doing. Don't take responsibility for your neighbor. None of this means, by the way, that you ignore people in need while you're doing this, just because I know that that's be somebody's objection to this. That's not what I'm saying. But that you you start with, okay, I need to sort myself out. I need to take responsibility for myself. Um, you know, in our whole conversation at the end of a news episode a couple weeks ago, we were talking about uh, some of the nostalgia stuff mm-hmm. and, you know, this kind of arrested development phenomenon that a lot of people our age have, I, I, I made the point that, you know, a lot of that isn't your fault, but it is your responsibility to do something about the bad things that have happened in your life. Like that might The bad things in your life that have happened to you might not be your fault at all, but they are your responsibility then. So you take responsibility for yourself, whether or not it's your fault that you are the way you are. Okay, so you learn to do the small things. You learn to be consistent. You learn to develop things you're good at. You learn to be reliable. Okay, and then the second step in in this process, uh, as I saw it, was you live a life of ritual fulfillment. And I know a lot of people are probably wondering about the use of the word ritual there. So ritual fulfillment, this is a really key step in my mind because what this is about is doing small things well and doing them repeatedly. I believe very strongly that as humans, part of what it means to be humans is humans are ritual creatures. We are liturgical creatures, if we put it that way. Um, We're not designed for this constant stream of innovation and experience. And I think that's part of where a lot of people are struggling in today's culture because there is always this push towards innovation and experience. And not to say those things don't have a place and that you can't swing too far in the other direction. But I think as humans, we are humans designed to do the same things over and over again. And in a sense, this was in some ways the starting point for how I abstracted all the rest of this. Uh, because as I started to think about, well, what does it mean to live a good life? Like, it can't be about whatever answer you come up with, there has to be an answer that works for everybody everywhere because it's at its most basic level. And so the answer can't be backpack through Europe, like, because there's a lot of people who can't do that. Uh, and even people who, um, you know, maybe can, don't want to. I'm not even talking about then. It's like you go back 500 years and most people are living and dying within 30 miles of where they were born. So what does it mean for that person to live a good life? And there's so much crap out there around this. Like, uh, you know, go live your life to the fullest. So, well, what does that actually mean? And because uh, I believe that, like I believe, like, you know, in the Gospels, John 10, 10, come that you have life and have life to the full. Like that's clearly part of the Gospel. But what does that actually mean? And it, I think we tend to interpret that as go have all these wild experiences. I was like, well, no, that's not how humans work. That might be an opportunity some people have, but we have to look more basic than that. If that's a good thing for you to do, it's 
it's a bonus on top of the normal human experience. The normal human experience is doing the same things over and over and over again and doing them with faithfulness. That's what it means to to live well in a way that prepares you for the transcendent. And this is really bears up because you look at like, what do all religions have in common? It's that they all contain this element of ritual to them. In other words, when humans are out to go get in touch with the transcendent, they don't go after some crazy experience. They go after ritual, which is the same thing again and again and again and again. Liturgy too. Yeah. 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 And like even so, is that what you're getting at? Though liturgy is tied into that. Absolutely. Yeah. And even so-called non-liturgical churches f- still fall into liturgy. Like church, you have to work really hard to be religious in a non-liturgical way. Because all liturgy lit, litur- <laughs> liturgical means is just doing something ritual continu- faithfulness. Yeah, continually yeah. Uh, in a repeated fashion. Right. Like. Uh, so a lot of you go to evangelical churches. This is what your typical Sunday looks like. Uh, you go to church, and maybe there's an opening song. Maybe there's not. Then there's some announcements. Then there's going to be a fast song, and we're going to slow things down for a couple slower songs where we're feeling it. And then we maybe go for a medium song, and then there's a sermon, and then we have the wrap-up song. Yeah, maybe you throw a communion or offering in right. there. Yeah, there might be a few variations. But what's fascinating about that to me is that, and I'm not trying to rip on evangelicals, but that a lot of evangelicals say, well, we don't want to, we're not liturgical because we want to have room for the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does. But then they, they are liturgical, like they're still doing liturgical things. And I actually think that's a really good thing um, because that's what it means to be faithful. Okay. So let me just, I'm going to come back to this to answer your question at the end, but then just, I can see where you're going with yeah, this. Yeah. yeah. But keep going. So. Then you transcend, that puts you in a position to, to transcend beyond yourself, to, to raise a family well, to be part of a culture, to be part of a nation, to be part of humanity, to be part of whatever different groups you're part of, to transcend yourself and be part of humanity, and to pursue God, to pursue the transcendent proper. And then the result of that is that radical Dantean inversion, which leads you to care for what has been given to you, to take responsibility for things beyond yourself, to sort other things out and then to actually make the world around you better. You know, it's the Mother Teresa quote, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. It's, it's, it's that idea that comes out of the Dantean reversal. Okay, so a lot more that could be said there, but let's focus on going back to the, the ritual fulfillment. So going back to this whole paradox I felt between, so what then is the value in somebody just reading their Bible in a devotional way day after day after day, even though they have no theological training, uh, are probably getting a lot of things wrong in terms of what they think about this or that verse or idea or whatnot, or even for those of us who have theological training, it's like, well, you know, I'm not necessarily thinking back about what that Greek word means as you're reading through Luke or whatever. Um, so what what's the value? there? Well, the value is this ritual faithfulness, because that's what gets you prepared to be in touch with the transcendent it's it's not necessarily about knowledge it it doesn't exist i think the daily bible reading doesn't exist on the rational level it exists on the extra rational the transrational levels in other words it's not about well today i'm going to get some super great insight into what jesus was really saying and look i mean you might have an insight i'm not saying that never happens but it's much more about being 
faithful and living out that ritual faithfulness. And to answer your question uh, from the beginning, well, should what happens when yeah, you start like to... Senate, I'd be blown away by the fact that I'm reading God's words. And I think the answer is no, because the way that ritual faithfulness works is that it's very similar to being in love, I think, and that when you are in love, you go through, you have this initial attraction, and then you go through this stage where you are blown away. But to truly be in love in a way that you can build a marriage around is not to be constantly blown away. It's to be faithful. And it's the exact same thing in terms of ritual faithfulness. It, it's that you do go through periods where you are blown away, but the true faithfulness is in carrying out the ritual and doing the thing over and over again. I totally hear what you're saying. I'm just wondering if all analogies sort of fall short when you're talking about God, who we're supposed to be in awe of. But what does it mean to be in awe of God? Um, see, I don't think it's an experience thing, and I don't think it's an emotion thing. Uh, I, I've said, I don't think I've said this on the air here before, but I've said in other conversations with people that, you know, if you're going to make it as a Catholic, uh, you got to let go of that whole I need an emotional experience thing pretty quickly because the priest is going to stand up and he's going to say the exact same words week in and week out, day in and day out if you go to daily mass, and it's this constant repetition. And so to be in awe might manifest itself emotionally and does manifest itself emotionally and experientially at times, Um, but often it does not. And if we, you know, if our, our... starting point is let's observe what it means to be human and go from there. Part of that observation has to be that as humans, we are not designed for this constant state of emotional awe. That to be in awe of something then is to be faithful to it, and that is the greater form of awe. Uh, To be awe of something in a way where you are able to repeat that same action out of a state of belief and out of a desire for the transcendent. I think there's a value there that we don't, that we've lost sight of in a lot of ways in our culture, but that is far more valuable than the emotional experience. I'm just going to say something that sounds funny, but just to get the point across. So I think I hear you saying it doesn't matter if you're as engaged with the text as long as even if you're bored you're devoted correct you know i think of like mother Teresa, and you read about her uh the things she went through like she went through incredible periods of just spiritual suffering and 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 really struggling with doubt and and belief and you look at her life and why is she a saint it's not because she was in this constant state of awe it's because she was faithful like that's what made her a saint uh and I think you look at a lot of the saints' lives and you see this overwhelming suffering in a lot of them and this this constant state of um, faithfulness in the, in the face of every reason to not be faithful. And boredom is a reason to not be faithful. And faith when you're feeling it, I mean, that's fine, but and you should take it when it comes. Like, I don't. You shouldn't feel bad when you're excited about your faith, but like true faith is faith in the absence of feeling it. It's it's faith. Faithfulness doesn't isn't really tested until the emotion is gone. 
All right. I think that was a good answer to the question. I, I have to think about it a little bit, but I, yeah, in some ways it feels like, is this just an easy out? Oh, but I'm, well, but it, no, it is, because it, re- it requires something more of you. Like, it's an easy out if what you do with it is say, well, now I'm just going to kind of zone, you know, zone out and not really pay attention and not not worry about it. But if, but to actually say that I'm required to be faithful even when I feel like zoning out and mm-hmm. I know I will get no emotional payoff from this, that requires something more of you, not less. No, I definitely love your well-reasoned not even arguments, just your points. I like where you're coming from. I think I just need for myself to sit sit with this a little bit longer to think through it. The listeners, I'm interested in gain your thoughts as well. You can write us at feedback at the sci-fi-christian.com. Uh, what are your closing thoughts on this? So that's how you read the Bible, kids. <laughs> if you want me to come teach your Sunday school class, just let me know. I definitely like what you were saying there. I was tracking with you. Uh, I, I thought, you know, sometimes when we've done the aesthetic series, there's some things, just to be totally honest, that go over my head. And I love learning from you. Well, it, helps, but, it would help if I had a whiteboard. Like, I like to whiteboard this yeah, stuff. Yeah, but, as I, but I was really tracking with you all along. I, I just have to think more about my own personal life. Uh, yeah, I, I think I am still kind of stuck in the old patterns of God is big. I should really be feeling something about that. But I, yeah. I totally hear what you're saying. So, again, thank you for sharing that with us. You are welcome. All right, everybody. Well, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. And the intro music, or outro music's over. I'm Bandy Bono. We're the Sapphackerson signing off. Yeah, goodbye. And just in case anybody is interested, I did quickly look up our Dante episode. So, I love these conversations Ben had had with us uh, going through the whole Divine Comedy. Specifically, he referenced episode 341, which we called Encircling the Inferno. So check that out, episode 341. But if you want to continue on the journey, uh, we got Purgatorio in episode 351. Then we had Pondering Paradiso, episode 377. So go check those out. Good idea. And we're back, Ben. Well, you forgot about it until now. What did you think? Man, it was great. I I don't know how I do it. Uh, Just one after another. You know what's truly transcendent is listening to me talk about these great ideas. So I haven't re-listened this episode for a while. Hopefully in the midst of this episode, I gave you listeners uh, maybe some of the other episode titles so you can go check out episodes that connected to this this theme because I think it was the year before that we did a lot on the transcendent. It looks like well, when I read that list earlier in the episode at the very beginning during our intro, uh, this was episode 586. Everything else that it was up against uh, were in the 600s. So this was one of our early episodes. For, well, no, wait a second. Oh, my goodness. This is when, yeah, you know how we um, we have that weird voting period where it's like yeah. September or 1st. Yeah. It's all weird. So it looks like this episode actually came out the year before. We voted. Wow. Oh. I think that's all true. Well, that's great. It's stuck in people's minds that long. Not mine, but other that, people's. Yeah. So I should, I'll just quickly note, there's a little bonus feature for now, the outro here. Uh, I am not doing the voting until the end of yeah. 2021. So starting in 2022, we're going to look back on the full year. So for one year, it's going to be like September 1st, 2020 yeah. to all of 2021. Then we'll get part 10. Or, you know, the 10th entry of the best of the best, and then we'll be able to vote. So we're a little bit a, bit a ways away. Uh, I know that wasn't the right way to say it. We're a ways away from actually being able to vote yeah. on the best of the best, but we've only got one entry left all to right. throw out there, and we'll be releasing that in the next month or so. I'm excited. All right, everybody. Well, that's all from here. I'm Matt Edison. I'm Ben DeBono. We're the Sci-Fi Christians signing off. Yeah,
episode 586, Gospel Fatigue. Would you have added anything like, and... Welcome to, like to the Sci-Fi Christian, news. bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Matt Anderson. And I am Ben DiBono. We are back. Well, let's have this conversation. What should it be? Gospel fatigue and what? Well, we'll wind up talking about the transcendent a little bit. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Right. And it's also really more Bible fatigue, isn't it? Like, you're not just sick of the gospel. Yeah, you're, you're right. sick of the whole thing. All right, this is going to be an outtake for the end. Right. Let's start this episode over. <laughs> <laughs>